Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Good. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, It's nice to have you with us. My name's Ed, for those of you who don't know me. I lead the church with my wife, Hannah, uh, who's down here at the front. Um, And uh, it's Sunday, and it's Labor Day, the end of the summer. It's like clockwork. Um, We are continuing our series, People uh, in Search of a Kingdom. We all, all humankind, are people in need of a kingdom, in fact. Without one, we can get very anxious. And there's a lot to be uh, worried about right now if we choose to be worried about things, isn't there? Uh, Not since the Cold War, I think, has uh, there been more of a sense of kind of foreboding and uh, worrisome atmosphere in our world. Uh, Midway through last year, as kind of COVID was raging, uh, as political unrest was, as was at its height, grave new reports about um, the true nature of climate change were being released, uh, and systemic racism exposed yet again. Hannah and I were having, uh, we were talking with some friends of ours, and uh, a friend said, well, you know, what's your take on everything that's going on in the world? Is this the apocalypse? And uh, before I could really say, no, I don't think it is the apocalypse, uh, our friend said, I really think it's the apocalypse, Uh, and he wasn't joking. Since then, I doubt much has um, made him convinced of uh, anything to the contrary. Uh, The extraordinary sort of weather, forest fires, things that we're seeing, New York here, suicide rates, conspiracy theories, rumors, all these sorts of things. Should one want to be, there is a lot to be anxious about. But whether it is or it isn't the end of the world, as people of Jesus' kingdom, there is absolutely no need to be worried. We can be wonderfully open to the future, however gloomy it may look, and however long that gloom may continue, because we know that all foreboding aspects of the future have already been settled in Jesus. But not just that. When apocalyptic-like events occur, like we're seeing all over the place right now, and friends are worried that the end may actually be here, we can say that we know all about the end of the world because we've seen it. Or rather, we've seen him. In the um, Revelation of John, right at the end of the Bible, Jesus is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one from the future 
who was before time began, who entered into our time and space in the past to inaugurate his kingdom at a moment in human history, and who now reigns forever and ever. He is the cosmic king yesterday, today, and for all time. As Hannah said last week, this is some Christopher Nolan mind-bogglingness. It's something that we're never quite going to get our heads around, but the simple point is this. Jesus is the end. And we've seen him. And so there's nothing to be worried about. There are no between times. There is no coming rapture. Right now, this isn't the rapture. All the people who are not here, just so you know, this is just Labor Day. This is what happens. The rapture has not, don't worry. In fact, there is no real biblical solid evidence for the rapture at all or a sort of in-between times. There are no end times, or rather, there are, and we have been living in them for quite some time now. The end times started 2,000 years ago with the coming of Jesus, and it's one solid continuum until he returns and heaven is here in full. So we've all been living in them. Welcome to them. These are the end times. They started before you were born. His kingdom has come, and it will come in the future. There's nothing more that we're waiting for other than the fullness of that kingdom. Now and not yet. Welcome. Welcome to the end of the world. So there's some actually really good news here. Because the eternal future is already settled and we can enter into it now. And it's glorious and it's beautiful and it's life-giving and it's joyous. Not only has death already been defeated, but we can enjoy the foretastes in the present. Healing, restoration, peace, forgiveness, no more fear, no more doubt, no more worries. So what I want to do today is unpack what we mean by these last days, this kingdom already come, what it looks like now, and what it means for us now. After Jesus was tempted in the desert by the devil for a bit, it says this in Luke's Gospel, verse uh, 14 of chapter 4, I think. I don't know, but I think. Let's go with that. Uh, Jesus returned to Galilee. Yeah. In the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Ike, I'm actually going to stop there. Now, as Hannah and I have been speaking about over the last couple of weeks, all of Israel's expectation was for some sort of Messiah, God's chosen king. 
he was coming to liberate them from the bondage of the Roman occupation and establish his kingdom once and for all with them. It is in this passage that Jesus leaves no equivocation, no doubt in anyone's mind. He is here to do that now. Now, in the most part, Israel were expecting a military king, someone in the line of David who would fight their battles, a little bit like Ben's earlier song about fighting battles. Uh, but there were some also more grandiose expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like. In Isaiah in particular, there's this vision of a whole new world order of liberation and freedom and healing and uh, all tears being wiped away, everyone being made new. But even those loftier expectations of what this coming king would do, what this Messiah would do, cannot really hold a light to the sheer magnitude of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus announces his kingdom as an end-of-the-world event. He has come not to wage war with human foes, but all spiritual and cosmic evil. He has come not just to right every wrong, not just to set every captive free, not just to heal all sickness, defeat death once and for all, but to bring the future reality of a heavenly existence to every single person living on this world right here, right now. To set in motion and declare that the end of the world has begun, and it's begun in him. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the symptoms of a faith not based on the theology of the kingdom, that it can be a little bit slim and impotent if the only real reason to be a Christian is to make sure that we don't go to hell or that we get to heaven or that we've got someone to help us with parking spaces and pray to now and again and help us win Oscars. Like, it's a little bit slim and pathetic, actually. The Jesus of the Gospels, by contrast, is the cosmic king who took on flesh to identify with us, entering into our own time and space in order to inaugurate a kingdom of such magnitude and scope that the last thing that anyone can say about it or him is that it is small. It is irresistible and irrepressible. It's quite frankly a little bit formidable. It's unnerving. It can be a bit scary, the God of the Bible, the Jesus who walked around and people could not uh, help themselves but bow down and worship him. Or they were scared of him after he'd just done this in the synagogue. They try and push him off a cliff. Safe. Safe, say the inhabitants of Narnia about the king, the lion, Aslan. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. The Messiah is here, and the end of the world has begun. And the experience of which is seen in the breakthrough of God's kingdom here and now. When John, John the Baptist, was put in prison... He heard about what Jesus was doing, and he sends his disciples to ask him, is this the one who we have been expecting, or are we to wait for another one? And Jesus replies, go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, 
the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's this age, this period of time that we are living in. It's encompassed by Jesus' proclamation that the year of the Lord's favor is here. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament principle of the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, all debts are forgiven, all land is returned to its um, owners and redistributed. Everyone enjoys the bounty of God's creation given to them. No one is in need. Every 50 years, the year of Jubilee. But the year Jesus brings does not last for 12 months. It lasts for all eternity. Its scope is cosmic and universal, and it's built on God's settled attitude towards everyone, towards you. His settled attitude is one of grace and love. You are brought in. You are special. You are not cast out. God really loves you. So much so that he's brought his kingdom here for you, and he wants you to enjoy it. And it means, first and foremost, universal liberation. Jesus came to set people free from every type of bondage. When uh, we first moved to L.A., we met some friends who started coming to the church. And they told us about friends of theirs who had been part of their old church. And these friends of theirs, the husband of uh, the couple, had lost his job. And uh, they were really struggling financially. Emotionally, it had been a huge hit on them. They were very worried. Their pastor got in touch and invited them around for dinner. And they were really touched by this because they hadn't really had any contact with the pastor for the whole of uh, the time they'd been at the church other than when they first arrived. And the pastor brought them around and they thought, "This this is so kind. But it became very clear whilst they were having dinner with the pastor and his wife that he didn't uh, know that they'd lost their job. He wasn't concerned that they'd lost their job. The reason he'd invited them around for dinner was because they'd stopped tithing, and he wanted to know why, and did they know how serious that was. This gracelessness, this religiosity, this stink of control is what Jesus comes to liberate us, his people, from. He reserves the harshest of critiques for the religious authorities of his time. Woe to you, Pharisees. And let me tell you, that is pharisaical. It's disgusting. Woe to you, Pharisees. You lock people out of the kingdom. You do not go in yourselves. And when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. Don't you just love Jesus? The time has come. Jesus says, my kingdom is at hand. He is gunning for every single element of your life that has been robbed of you, from you, by religiosity, by a lack of grace, by anything other than you are his, he loves you, you're special, and God is nice, and he's for you. Because it robs us 
It stinks. And we need to be set free. But it's not just from religious oppression that he comes to set the captives free. It's from all sorts of societal, social, familial, sexual, political oppression too. I was uh, talking with someone a couple of weeks ago who it was their first time at, at Bread. Um, and this is by no means the first time that Hannah and I have heard a similar story to this person's. I don't want to embarrass them. Uh, I'm not going to go into details, uh, but I want to just give an overview of um, what was going on for this person. It's not my place to tell their full story, so I'll try and do it in um, uh, sound bites. In general terms, uh, they had an experience uh, growing up um, of horrible abuse from the people um, who should have shown love and care most um, prominently in their life. And the death of loved ones had sort of um, punctuated their experience. They'd become self-destructive. And that behavior had almost cost them their life. But this person displaying extraordinary courage had come to church, displaying extraordinary courage, had come to the front um, to receive prayer. And the Spirit met this person in such a way that the healing process began there and then. And we talked afterwards, and tears streaming down this person's face. And they said they hadn't been able to cry for 15 years. This is the beginning of freedom for all the pain, all the memories of the past. It's why Hannah and I do this stuff. Do you know how boring and tedious so much of church leadership is? Very boring and tedious. I don't know why anyone does it, or rather I do. I do. Because Jesus is the king of his kingdom, and he sets the captives free. Captives to the sin of those who've sinned against them, and of course our own. And you can see, can't you, that a cosmic, all-powerful God entering into our world, bringing his kingdom, setting people free, is good news. This is what it means. It's good news. But it's not just good news on our own personal terms. It's good news for the whole entire world, past, present, and future. When the angels meet the shepherds and declare that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, their first words are this, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Um, I asked Maggie about this earlier, I'm just going to share what she shared at Wednesday, if you were here on uh, first Wednesday, um, she gave me permission to talk about this, but uh, she um, had been sitting in her pew coming to the church uh, and um, had never quite made it up to the front for prayer because it's a bit scary, isn't it? Who knows what might happen? But she was there, and she'd been sitting there and feeling very um, much unseen. And she was saying uh, on Wednesday, that as she was sitting in the pew, she was saying, I, um, I feel lost. That was the word that kept going round and round in her mind. I feel lost. And she felt God say, well, you need to um, 
exercise faith so that you know that you can be seen, which was sort of the impetus to bring her to the front. So very bravely came to the front, opened herself to the Spirit. Uh, Raoul started praying for her. Without knowing anything, Raoul was praying things like, um, God sees you. And then just as he's finishing praying, he says, I can see a picture of a flashlight, and the flashlight is shining on you. And the thing God wants you to know more than anything is that you are not lost. What a wonderful experience of God using people to build his kingdom and to say there is good news. You are not alone. You are not lost. He knows you and he loves you. This is more of why we do what we do. And it gives us reason to rejoice. The joy that comes from living in the end of time is qualitatively different to any other sort of joy. The joy we're talking about is the joy of a future world where everything is going to be all right. John the Baptist, when he is in the womb of his um, mother Elizabeth, Mary, the mother of Jesus' cousin, when she is told about the Messiah coming, says that the, the baby leapt with joy inside her mother's womb, his mother's womb. As I quoted earlier, the angel's announcement is one of great joy for all the people. The first disciples who meet the risen Jesus were filled with joy and amazement. We can rejoice because our future is completely secure. We can be completely free to enjoy the joy of our Father and his kingdom. Now, this is, of course, not to minimize any ghastly experiences that people are going through. As we always say, and as we've been teaching about, the kingdom is already, but it is not yet. We live in a time of healing not always being what we see. We are all going to die. There are painful, horrible things happening in people's lives. And we, as a community, mourn with those who mourn, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. But we do know that the Spirit is here as part of his kingdom to comfort. We do believe in healing. And we do see all the signs of his kingdom, which is why we continue to pray for them. But, just a little plug, it's a great thing to be part of a super small group, because you've got people. Do you know what it's like to be comforted with people who know you as opposed to just by yourself? Do you know what it's like to rejoice with people who know you rather than just by yourself? One of my favorite films is Sideways, the um, kind of wine film. You young people love it. Uh, it's basically about a, a wine snob. And right at the end, uh, he's sort of overcome some of his snobbery, and he's got this very old bottle that he's trying to keep for a good um, a celebratory moment. But it's a kind of um, breakthrough because he decides, oh, I'm going to go and just go to a burger joint, get a dirty burger, and drink this priceless bottle of claret that I've been storing for years and years and years, and I'm going to drink it in this burger joint. And he does because he's got to overcome some of his snobbery. But it's also this sort of semi-tragic moment of he's just drinking wine and eating a burger by himself. Celebrating with people is what we're created to do. Mourning with people is what God has given us so that we can be put back together. 
so that we can be part of something bigger than ourselves. It's what we're made for. Join a super small group. Just do it. Flipping do it. You won't regret it. It's great to worship with people who actually um, are full of joy, isn't it? And who sing with their whole hearts. Not because their lives are perfect. Let me tell you, I spend time with Ben. Ben's life is a, a total mess. But that doesn't stop him worshiping with joy. Because his future is secure. And the kingdom is here. John Wesley um, was uh, an old dude. I mean, he's a dead dude. Uh, but he founded the Methodist Church. But to start with, he was a sort of upper middle class um, son of a pastor in England. And um, he was a bit uptight. Uh, he and his brother were at Oxford University together. And their Christianity was sort of this version of um, British civility. And they founded something at Oxford called uh, the Holy Club, which is the worst possible name for anything ever. If anyone ever invites you to a Holy Club, run for the hills. But they founded it. And this was a sort of do-gooding, pious, um, self-congratulatory awfulness. And that's because that's what they believed Christianity was. And then he felt like he had the need to get on a boat, go over to the colonies, go over to America, and try and convert some Native Americans in Georgia. So he got on a boat, and he went to do this. This went just as bad as you might expect. What he found out trying to convert Native Americans to some sort of British tea-drinking Christianity was that they were far more civilized, far more gracious than he was, and he was a completely broken man coming back. But on the way, there had been a shipwreck. And during the shipwreck, he was petrified. It wasn't a shipwreck, sorry, it was a storm, but it, it felt like was, the ship was going to be wrecked. Uh, he was petrified, but what he saw was these German Moravian Christians who were not petrified at all. In fact, during this storm where everyone was fearing for their lives, they just worshipped and prayed and were completely unfazed by the whole thing. And basically, he said, I want what that is. What is that? Then he went and tried to do his colonialization didn't go very well, thank God. And he went back, but he found the Moravians back in London. They explained to him the actual gospel. And famously, at a church evening service in Aldersgate in London, he experiences the actual love of God, the grace of God, and the power of the Spirit. And in his slightly uptight British way, he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And that was about it. <laughs> but he's completely changed completely changed. And he writes songs with his brother full of all the best hymns. I, I don't like old songs. We need new songs. Sing a new song. I don't want to sing old songs. Ben likes old songs. Each to their own, I'm right. Uh, but he sings incredible songs of joy abounding. He preaches and thousands of people come to see him preach because he's on fire. Because he's met the real living God. Because he is full of the Spirit. And he's full of joy. Um, someone sent me this, which I'm going to read to you, which is an extract from his diary. 
this, you might have seen this on doing the rounds, but this is an extract from his um, Wesley's diary after all these experiences. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May 5th, preached at St. John's, deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, preached in St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday evening, May 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out again. Sunday morning, May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's, he actually says that, St. Somebody Else's, deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as bull was turned loose during service. Sunday a.m., June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday evening, June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came to hear me. A lesson in persistence, but also don't you just love the joy? Don't you love the peace abounding? He does not care. Don't you want to not care about things that don't matter? This is the joy. This is the peace, the comfort that comes from knowing that we're living in the end times. Jesus is king. His kingdom will come. And it's here right now for all of us. So that, briefly, is a description, a depiction of the kingdom of God. And he is gunning for every nook and cranny of your life that has been robbed from you, that is joyless, that is worried, that is anxious, that is hurt and broken. He is gunning for every single aspect. He will not rest until he gets it all. So you can keep coming here and, you know, not engage. That's absolutely fine. Or you can get with the program and allow him to meet you in power and let him do it. It'll be painful to start because we're out of control and we don't like being out of control. And what might he do? He might put his finger on something that we find a little bit too difficult. But he does want to heal it. He does want to restore it. He does want to bring his kingdom come to all aspects of your life. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Paul says in Colossians, through his ministry, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. He shamed them. He laughed at them. He got on a cross and made a public display of how pathetic they were in the light of his power. Paul doesn't actually say that. I'm kind of ad-libbing. Triumphing over them on the cross. His death and resurrection is the final nail in the coffin of all evil. And it means that we live in the age of the resurrection. So things can be brought back to life. Nothing is wasted. Marriages can be completely reconciled. The blind can see again. Cancer can be banished. Lives which the world have said are now worthless, only good to be cast out and mocked. 
Jesus says, I will take those. I like those sorts of lives. Those are the ones I want. I'm going to make them glorious because that's what I do. One of the privileges of doing what we do is meeting people who are metaphorically limping back into church. Many of whom aren't sure that they want to be here or that they should be here, but they're limping either because they've pulled the ripcord of self-destruct in their own spiritual lives or someone has beaten it into them. It's not obviously a privilege meeting them limping. It's a privilege to see that God goes, great, now let me put you back together. Now let me restore you. Because this is the heart of the kingdom. He actually likes us. He likes us more when we're a bit limpy. I know the whole world tells us to put on a show and be perfect and impress people with how wonderful and amazing we are. Jesus couldn't care less. Finds it a bit offensive, actually. What he loves is a limping person going, I'm limping. Because then it is left to no one's doubt who it is who has the power to change people. The people who are used the most in God's kingdom, the people who experience his kingdom most in their lives, have given up all pretense. And are just going, here I am, I'm letting it all hang out. Please use me, I need your help. Be one of those people. So to end, how do we get it? Repent and believe. Repent doesn't really mean saying sorry. It means turning ourselves back, body, mind, spirit, attentions, will, turning ourselves away from all the stupid things that we think are going to bring meaning and love and goodness to our lives and focusing on the king of kings. That's what it is. Repent. Do it now. It will be good for you. And then believe some things. Here's some things that it would do all of us good to believe. Believe, like Maggie, that you are not lost. That Jesus knows your name, believes in you, that he made you, that you are precious in his sight. Secondly, believe, like my friend that I mentioned earlier, that all the corruption, all oppression, all the things that have come against you can be dealt with in his power to set you free. And believe that you have a place and purpose in the kingdom. The only kingdom that matters. Let's stand and let us close our eyes. Uh, You never have to do anything here, by the way. You're here on your own terms, as we always say. Um, But if you'd like to, let's close our eyes so that we're not distracted by what's going on around us. Let's open our hands just as a sign of being open and come with words. Tell Jesus what you need to tell him. He loves you so much.